darkness of the soul comes a slinking figure carrying what appears to be a symbolic object. He glances up at the purple lights. He... Oh, no, no, that's impossible. He couldn't have done that. Hi, George. <laughs> and is he circling for the fly ball? Will he catch it? Well, only time will tell. sobriety around here. It's not easy, I know, being a 20th century modern type man. You gotta play it uh, by ear. Let's see, excuse me, playing it by ear. Strong arm method, shield of the power of your arm power. Are you man enough to wear them? Yes. Strong arm bracelets. You can buy a bracelet. You can get a bracelet. In a second, your arms start losing 100% more power. Your body takes on the appearance of a ferocious strength. Striking fear and terror into anyone who even thinks of attacking you. Gotta get a couple of them power bracelets. You can buy bracelets, you know. It just gives you nothing but muscles bulging all over from behind your ears and all kinds of places like that. It's not bad. That reminds me of the outfit that my old man used to send in those two dollar and a half to all the time. It used to say, get up to 250 miles per gallon. Gasoline. It's a simple secret pill. Add it to your gas. We'll add mileage that you wouldn't believe. <laughs> the old man didn't. He got over three miles a gallon after that. Uh, we'd like to uh, salute the gentleman out here, uh, the geology students at Santa Cruz, California, who discovered three earthquake faults on the campus of the University of California. That's, that whole state is breaking up. It's just mess, I'll tell you. It's going to just dissolve one day and... The geology students discovered three new faults. On the nobody's finding anything good about anything these days. You notice that they're discovering faults out there on the campus of the University of California at Santa Cruz, and they were granted the traditional honor of naming them. <laughs> Not every guy who's named a fault. Thus, future geological survey charts will show the campus to have the following faults: my fault, your fault, and McHenry's fault. Named after the campus chancellor, Dean McHenry. In the good old summer, it's beginning. It's popping out all over. That's one of the things I like about summertime. It starts. By the way, a guy uh, was fishing in Union City, Tennessee, a couple of days ago, in case you're curious how summer is uh, beginning to work out. You know, this is a nutty season, you know. And for those of you who uh, are real nutty season fans, I'd like to suggest you, uh, you, uh, Consult your local uh, Sunday edition of the Times in the back there. They have this nutty section back there, you know, where you can buy stuff like, uh, like uh, you can buy uh, surplus parachutes, surplus German Lugers to be used for uh, 
you know, paperweights and things like that. Oh, yeah. I remember the day they had the brass knuckles one time. They make wonderful conversation piece. Actually, they make wonderful stoppers to conversation. I'm saying, <laughs> George. But uh, that's neither here nor there. There's a guy in Union City. I'm glad to see that summer's working out good here, George. It's going to be a good summer. Tom Meyer of Louisville, Kentucky, was at Real Foot Lake the other day trying to prove that owls really don't see too good in the daytime. Uh, Tom cast a surface lure. Uh, you know, plug, you know, you've seen those guys do that. And uh, an owl took it. Owl was flying by. You see that uh, little red and white plug go past him. He just nabbed it. You know, figured it was kind of a drunken turtle or something flying up there. It says the usually nocturnal bird missed on his first strike. He just, you know, took a swipe at it and missed it. Owls are not perfect, friends, so don't be snotty about it. Anyway, he came back for more and more, and he scored on his second attempt and flew off into a tree, hanging out at a plug. Well, now, that happened that Tom Meyer needed that plug. That was the only plug the bass was hitting in that lake, and it was the only one he had. And there's an owl sitting up the tree with his plug and chewing on it. Well, uh, Tom reeled it in. He got bugged, see? In comes the bird flapping. And he's just got it in his hands. He even got it in his mouth. He's got a hold of it with his, you know, the talons. They got talons out there. You know what a talon is, don't you? It's a zipper kind of thing. They got those things in the bottom there, see? So uh, the, owl's got, <laughs> the owl's got this. These t- By the way, uh, uh, oh, uh, the final story, kind of a letdown. The owl just, after he took the plug away, the owl just flew away. It looked awful mad, though. It just looked awful bugged. You see, he's not used to having bugs get away. Uh, and this one did, especially had them little things sticking out of the bottom. But nevertheless, uh, uh, I am sorry to have to report to you, George, tonight that once again man has marched forward and has done it. Out on the West Coast, I'm beginning to worry about the West Coast. Out on the West Coast, a militant group in Los Angeles has now formed up, and they're walking around with signs. They're picketing the libraries out there. You know why? They want Pinocchio expunged from the libraries. You remember Pinocchio? You remember Pinocchio? They say that that's an anti-Italian track. They say that Pinocchio... Well, after all, you know Pinocchio was a lion skunk. And uh, it's a bunch of militants out there. And they just would say it's a bad name to give the Italians out there. So I don't know what they're going to make Pinocchio when it's all over, you know. That reminds me... (laughs) Poor old Pinocchio. (laughs) Well, that's what you get when you lie. Uh, George, will you please give me a little low-down blues... Little low down blues there. Yeah. Oh, poor little old Pinocchio. Made out of that block of wood, there ain't nothing, nothing for it when you're made out of wood, friends. And your nose keeps growing and growing, and you just keep lying and lying. And it just keeps growing longer and longer and longer until one day there just ain't no way to turn back. ba 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 boo ba Oh, Pinocchio, we know just how you feel. ba ba boo ba 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 Pinocchio, you just lost yourself a bad deal. 
summer, I see a guy in South Africa just set the new world's record for eating watermelon. Your watermelon. It's all, it's popping out all over the world. It's not just here, you know. Set a record for eating watermelon. World's record. Six pounds, 15 and a half ounces of watermelon in 30 minutes. New record. Guy was spitting seeds faster than a machine gun could pop them out. Now, you ought to have seen that guy. Water squirting out of his ears, and he was just chomping away there. Well, uh, man, I must I must compliment man. He doesn't he doesn't stop. Uh, no, 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 no. One thing about man, he he just don't stop. Squirrels do. Squirrel has no staying power, but man, he'll stick right in there, man. No matter how nutty he's doing, he's doing it real bad. Yeah, we have a note here from Richmond, Virginia. For those of you, who, you know, worry a little bit. A man who said he got tired of waiting for service at a supermarket donut counter was arrested, charged with eating an eight cent donut. <laughs> he got bugged. He just started eating them things. Wallace Carlton Thomas, a father of three, said he went to the store to buy a dozen donuts. While he waited, he said he waited over and over and over. Nobody's waiting on him. He just stand there. He says, well, fine. He said, I just reached over and got one off the rack. That's all. He said, I just stood there eating it, thinking somebody would wait on me if I started eating them donuts. No one did, Thomas said. So he wandered over to a garden seed display where then they laid the arm on him. <laughs> they was watching him. A security guard arrested him. Thomas said after he was released in bond, he then went out and bought a dozen donuts at another store on his way home. He said, if you're going to treat me like that, I'm going to eat somebody else's donuts. They didn't say whether he started to eat seeds either while they went over there. Have you ever done that in a supermarket? Got so tired? <laughs> Listen, I'll tell you. Uh, I, I, uh, I, <laughs> oh, there's sneaks everywhere. Uh, sneaky people all over the place. Uh, we'd like to uh, salute a lady here, a uh, Mrs. Joyce Brister, lady there, hard-working lady. Uh, this is from Burnmouth, in the, uh, England. Now, if you don't know nothing about Burnmouth, I just... Uh, if you're curious why I'm using such awful language tonight, it's because I've been heavily influenced by Jersey. I was over in Jersey a couple hours a day, and it takes a while to shake it off, you know. Yeah, I don't want another, I don't want one of them cheese things, they say in Jersey. Don't give me none of that cheese things, Aki. I want a beer. That's a typical discussion, you know, philosophical type out on Route 3. However, uh, a dishwashing machine maker, you know, some guy made a dishwashing machine in Burnmouth, and uh, he put an ad in the paper. He asked for any Burnmouth housewife who could care to match her ability washing dishes against the machine. Mrs. Joyce Brister, 49, who weighed in at 137 pounds, said yes. The manufacturer gave a big dinner in front of a lot of people. Press, guys with flash bulbs and all that, see. And they had the dirty dishes divided up between the machine and Mrs. Brister. With the TV cameras rolling. Mrs. Brister finished her dishes in 21 minutes, 56 seconds. The machine took one hour and five minutes. The, <laughs> the machine maker then assembled three major judges to decide what dishes were cleaner. 
They said that Mrs. Brister's, di Mrs. Brister's dishes were by at least three lengths ahead of the machine. And by the way, it was put on all the television there. So th that's what I'm saying, man. You can't take no chances with your life. You just don't don't put it on the line. Don't put it on a stay away from the end of that limb. Somebody's going to come along with a saw. You're going to be flapping your hands out there in the breeze, hoping that you can take off. Ain't no way to do it, though. Ain't no way. You know, man's age-old dream, George, has been to fly by flapping his arms. Did you know that? Men have tried this ever since the first guy crawled out of the cave and he saw them birds flying around. There were birds those days. They didn't look like they were, you know, they don't look like they do now when he come out of the mud. And, of course, he didn't look like we look either. One thing, he was better looking, generally. And I'll tell you this, he was a hell of a lot stronger than most of you. Well, you run into one of those cavemen, you run into something, I'll tell you. Although, you can still see evidences of them around. They ain't all gone. So don't think that, uh, no, no, the Neanderthal is always with us. I'm sitting there the other day in a diner over there on Route 22, you see, and I couldn't believe my eyes. Og, son of fire, sat down next to me. Any of you remember Og, son of fire? You don't. Well, he's probably shoved you around in a parking lot back at a bowling alley once in a while. You maybe didn't know his name, but he's the guy with that low forehead, you know, with the hair that grows down right to the top of his nose. You've seen that guy. With a thick neck, you know. That size 22 neck, you've seen that guy. And he got them sloping shoulders. You've seen him. And bad-looking eyes. Well, that's Og, son of fire. And I was heavily influenced by him when I was a kid. They used to have this radio show about Og, son of fire. You sit there, you know. And uh, Og was a caveman. And, uh, you know, he'd walk around and, and do what cavemen do. Of course, they didn't have all of it, but he did. You know, they he was always fighting uh, things like Montasserai, stuff like that. And uh, I, you know how Brontosaurus sounds? Sounds like all the cheap Japanese late-night horror movies. That's the way they sound. I can make that sound. Give me a little echo chamber. I'll give you that sound. That's a cheap Japanese soundtrack from a bad Japanese, like, you know, the monster that ate Staten Island. That's a good one there. I, that's one of my favorite shows. They're, they're, you know, the, well, actually, the best one, the, the, the first one in the series was the monster that ate the Bronx. After that, the monster that ate Staten Island, the monster that threw up Queens, and uh, all those, uh, the, the tremendous series. But they, they, you know, the second ones are never as good as the first. You notice that? It's always a way. It follows women, everything. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> there's not much you can do about it. You know, they, they come on, they say, that, you know, there's this commercial that says uh, for them that, that uh, they want more than one beer, they should drink this kind of beer, you know. You see, that's for those who are going to drink more. Well, I mean, after the fourth or fifth, after maybe the tenth or the eleventh beer, it don't it don't matter what you know. I've seen guys after they've drunk that twenty, thirty beers, you know, you can float cigar butts in their beer. They don't care. They just drink it down. That's you become a beer drinking machine. I mean, you know, you don't claim it. <laughs> it doesn't make no difference one way or the other. Now, you know, I'll, by the end of this show, however, my language will be will be uh, somewhat improved, so don't worry about it. Uh, tonight, uh, since it is the beginning of the season there, I've had a number of requests this summer. Uh, last year, we uh, introduced the summer season. You know, May, it's a kind of groovy time. Uh, we introduced the summer season by singing Hindustan in Japanese. Would you care for me to do that again tonight? George, you, did you like that last time? We received an, an inordinate number of uh, complaints about it, however. 
And uh, I simply say, you do your thing, I do mine. And mine happens to be singing Japanese versions of Hindustan. So bring it on there, George. I Here we go. summer for tonight. That's uh, it's, uh, sufficient there. It's enough to get the ashes out of the skull. Have you ever had a feeling that uh, that somehow your head has turned a Brillo pad? You ever, you ever go through a period, you know, when you, you just don't... You, you, your head doesn't work. It's just like a sleep. Just, you, you just, you just asleep. And you walk around and, uh, and uh, it's like you got cheesecake between the ears. Well, you know, the science has been been proving lately that that is true. There is a large cheesecake content that they begin to detect between the ears of many people, and I'm certainly one of them. Now, I have to like cheesecake. I'm not against it. I think if man's head was made of cheesecake, there'd be a lot less wars and yelling and shoving. Everybody would just sit around, you know, and chew on grass and belch once in a while, which wouldn't be bad. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, have you noticed how vulgar I am tonight? Vulgarity is rampant. Tell you, just... And I I deplore it just as much as you do, friends. Uh, I I just just think vulgarity is bad news. And, uh, of course, I I fight against it. You'll notice that I'm wearing a tie. It lights up, that's right. If you look on the other side, it's got a naked lady on it, but it is a tie. Now, uh... What are you going to do about it? You know, when you're influenced by that kind of... I'm, I'm influ- I was influenced by, in this direction when I was a kid. You know, what can you do? My old man, for example, used to bring home these things that he put under the coffee table. We got my mother all, you know, she'd flip. She'd, come in. she'd like to keep her house clean, you know. The old man would get these little plastic things. Looks like some, some dog been visiting the, you know. And, and she'd come in, she'd see that under the table, and she'd scream. Oh! You know, the old man would sit there, he'd laugh and pick his teeth. You know, he had these rubber toothpicks he'd give to his friends. Well, yeah, he was, he was one of them, you know, practical joke type. He'll love to do that. I'll never forget the time he brought home the box of chocolates. You ever seen those? And he gave it to my mother, see? He said, there's a celebrate the spring, and it had uh, pink ribbons and all that stuff. And she said, oh, how nice. And he said, oh, it's all right. I just was walking along, and I thought of you, and it was a nice day. I just thought of you, and I just thought, uh, you'd like a little gifty. And my mother, you know, she just flipped out, you know. Women love this kind of stuff. She said, oh, that's so nice. Here, she says, I'm going to pass it around. He said, no, no, I want you to have the first piece. I don't, uh, I bought it for you. Don't give it to the kids. It's for you. She said, well, all right. And she, you know, looks in there and picks out the biggest, juiciest chocolate. And she pops it in her trap. Ah! It was filled with liquid soap and cayenne pepper. I want to tell you her, she had these aluminum rheostats she wore in her hair. You know, these curlers, they lit up. Radioactive. That's the old man. Now, and when, you, when you're influenced by that kind of stuff, what are you going to do? I mean, like the time... Well, uh, that's not the... Like the time... <laughs> one time we had, you know, my Uncle Carl, my Uncle Tom, all those, uh, the crowd come over one Sunday. 
And uh, my Aunt Glenn, who was a very distinguished lady, you know, everybody's got one kind of a square-type aunt. My Aunt Glenn was the kind of lady, very square, you know. And uh, she she wore flowered print dresses and that kind of stuff. And, and she liked to go to concerts and stuff. And so uh, she goes into the washroom before lunch, see. We're going to have this lunch out on the porch and all that. And so she goes into the washroom, and and uh, she stays in there for a while, you know, and you hear a lot of yelling and stuff and, and complaining. And uh, she comes out of the washroom, and her face had this stuff all over it. My old man had put a bar of soap in there. He was waiting for her, see. Do you know that you can get a bar of soap that when you wash your, your hands, looks just like a regular soap, see. When the water gets on it, it turns like green and makes green paint all over the face. Well, she'd come out there with green paint all over her ears. And the old man, he laughs and hollers, you know, and he flips a cigar bun into the fern plant. Now, when you're, when you're influenced by that kind of stuff, what do you do? I mean, it's a practical joke. Now, now uh, I, it takes a certain kind of person to like practical jokes. I, I personally, I'm not, not like, the, like the time, uh, again, he, one of his favorite jokes was whenever there was a, a, an official type would come over, like the time the insurance man came over. I'm a kid, you know, I'm hanging around... And the insurance man would come over there, see, to adjust the old man's policies and try to get some money out of him, see. And uh, the old man's sitting down, he says, would you care for a drink? And the man says, well, uh, I don't usually drink on the job. And the old man says, oh, come on, come on, I can't see you in here. <laughs> so with that, uh, he says, well, yes, I don't mind if I do. And uh, what do you have? And the old man says, well, anything you care for, what do you like? Uh, you know, uh, like a little uh, knee-high orange? Or would you like a couple of fingers of bourbon, like a real man? So I'll have the bourbon, please. Well, how will you? Would you like a little water? Just uh, on the rocks, a little branch water? It's just a couple of fingers at a little branch water. So the old man goes out and he fixes it, see? And so I'm watching this thing. So the old man, he sips his bourbon. He goes, ah! You know, there's a certain type of guy, whenever he takes a drink, you know, he goes, oh, why? Wow. Well, that's the old man. See, he'd react to his bourbon. So he takes a sip of the bourbon. <clears throat> oh, that's good stuff. Well, the insurance man says, well, oh. He says to the hidden claws, there it is. He raises it. <laughs> and so he takes a sip of the bourbon. The old man says nothing. Well, I notice uh, right away there's something wrong there. So he takes another sip of the bourbon. And now you can see the insurance man is looking kind of funny. He keeps looking down. Well, I can see the bourbon is dribbling down on his necktie. And every time he'd sip the bourbon, it would dribble down on his neck. Have you ever seen a dribble glass in action? Yeah. Well, that was the, you know, that was the low brand of humor that the old man loved. After about 15 minutes of that, the guy's shirt front is all covered with bourbon and... <laughs> oh, so when you're influenced by that, you don't expect me to grow up and be Dick Cavett, do you? I mean, I can just see the elegant home he must have come from. But, uh, now, uh, another, uh, you want to hear more of them? Oh, no, he had millions of them. Like, for example, did you ever see the wax mouse gag? You never did? We had a wax mouse. And uh, this is another thing, see. The old man uh, uh, would come into the house, see, and there's, there's guests. My mother, like, for example, she would have the ladies over on Wednesday. They're sitting around eating bridge mix, playing pinochle or bridge or whatever it was, you know. And uh, he'd come in there, see, and he's got his suit on and, uh, you know, looking very official. And my mother would say, oh, have you met Mrs. Parker? And uh, Mrs. Parker's sitting over there. Actually, my mother didn't talk like that. All her friends did. So uh, she says, if you met Mrs. Parker, my old man comes, oh, Mrs. Parker, glad to meet you. And he'd walk over there, and of course, they're all sitting there clawing away at the bridge mix. And uh, the old man says, you mind if I have a little bridge mix? And he'd reach into the bridge mix. He did this many times. It really works. He'd reach into the bridge mix. All of a sudden, it looks like a mouse has jumped out of the bridge mix. 
has a mouse in it and run right up his sleeve. It goes zap up his sleeve. And he goes, oh, 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 there's a mouse. And he runs out, you know, he's flapping his arms, yelling, oh, the mouse, run up my sleeve. And the ladies all go, ah, woo! And uh, that's his wax mouse gag. Now, you know how he did it, huh? <laughs> did you know how he did it? He had a whack. Yeah, he's got a string, see, in the other hand, see? And the string goes up one, uh, right up his sleeve, see? It goes around his neck and uh, underneath his shirt, see? And way down under the other arm, see? And he carries this little wax mouse in his hand. It looks exactly like a real mouse, a little gray mouse, you know? had little eyeballs and everything, see? And then he just drop it in the, in the, in the, in the, in the bridge mix, see? When everybody's looking, he just drop it with his hand down. And then you see it. Suddenly you see a mouse. He's, oh, oh, a mouse! Whoop! And then he whip his other hand, and up the mouse goes up his sleeve. And, of course, the old man is running around down the basement. The ladies are screaming. So when you're influenced by that kind of stuff, what are you going to do? I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the worst, the worst humor, the worst kind of humor is the practical joke. That's the worst practical joke. That reminds me, this is W.O.R. New York. It's the worst kind of practical joke. And, uh, I, I, I have a thousand. The old man had, he had a whole, in fact, he had a drawer that he had locked big drawer, you know, and it was in this uh, trusted drawer, see, and he kept all of his uh, equipment in there, when, you know, he wanted to do things, for example, uh, he had, have you ever seen the glass hard-boiled egg, that's a goodie, that's a good one, and uh, he used to, and, and uh, he had, for example, have you ever seen the rubber cheese sandwich, never saw that one, have you, well, <laughs> Well, have you ever heard the Have you ever heard of the uh, the honking weenie? Yeah, he had a weenie that honked. Well, what he did, <laughs> I'll tell you what he used to do with that one. Now, uh, you know, he'd, he'd set these gags up very elaborate, you know, and and, and so like, like uh, my, again, it was a party, and there'd be a lot of ladies and uh, people around there seeing. And uh, my old man used to love to take a a big wash basin, so he'd put it on the stove, and he would boil weenies, you know, to make hot dogs. He, well, then he would sneak into the chest of drawers and he'd take out his honking weenie. Now, what a honking weenie looks exactly like a real weenie. See, just a, you know, it looks like a boiled weenie. See, so he would put it in a in a regular bun. He'd put the ketchup on it or whatever you want, you know, mustard, and he would hand it to somebody. Say, well, the minute the guy took a bite of it, it would go. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it may sound like a duck. See, he just clamped down on it and it would go. Quack, 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 quack. It would turn it on. See, he wound it up. It had a little key in it, see? And the minute the pressure of your teeth would go, it would make this honking sound. You couldn't stop it. So the guy's got a, a sandwich. And he goes, oh, 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 quack, quack. And the old man would flip and yell, you know, and knock over the kitchen table and choke and lay on the floor and kick his shoes off. And everybody would look, oh, what a slob. He loved it, you know? Okay. Now, uh, there are all kinds of practical jokes. Uh, and, and, and none of them worth a damn. And none of them. But they're, they're all kinds of practical stuff. <laughs> all right, you know, I'll tell you others. Some of the most elaborate practical jokes. You know, one of the most famous practical jokers in history, if you like those terrible jokes. Of course, uh, I've seen some bad ones, Paul, but uh, one of the most famous practical jokers was a guy named Stephen Lycock, who was a writer, and he was a famous professor and a very distinguished man. I mean, you know, he looked like the kind of guy that... Uh, you know, it appears on the presidential panels and stuff, you know, that kind of jazz. And a great historian he was, you know. Well, he had this farm up in Canada. And uh, he used to invite these, he used to, you know, pretend like he was a fantastic fisherman. He loved to fish, see. And uh, he would uh, tell these guys about how, how great the fishing was in this private pond he had on a farm.
Well, uh, they'd, uh, you know, everybody wanted to have an invitation to come up and fish on his fantastic lake. Well, so they would all stand around. He'd give them this beautiful fishing tackle. They'd get up at the crack of dawn, like 6 o'clock in the morning. He says, it's filled with lake trout. You've got to get up at 6 in the morning and get them. And the guys would go sneaking down to the lake. You know, his own private lake, remember, it's a pond, see? He says, it's been stocked by the Canadian government. And these are very rare trout. And he says, you catch these trout, man, and they're the greatest trout in the world. And he had one mounted, tremendous one, in his living room. It was like, you know, 12 feet long, weighed 400 pounds, and a tremendous thing. Had teeth on it and all that. So these guys go down there and they'd cast in the morning. There would be 15, 20 guys down there casting away, walking around. And uh, he'd say, well, I'm not going to fish today. He said, i just like, go, you guys go down and have fun down there and fish. And he said, that whatever you catch, of course, is your own. And so that afternoon, they would all come back to have lunch, see, and they'd sit around, one guy would say, oh, my God, did I have a fantastic strike. I mean, almost, he hit three times, over by the lily pads over there. And the uh, guy would sit there, well, that's very interesting. He said, you know, that's called, uh, that's called Old Faithful. That fish lives over there under lily pads. You know, that, that guy weighs over 600 pounds. There have been fishermen from all over the world come after that guy, and he's, he's known as the old tackle bustler. You almost got him, huh? He said, yeah, I'm going out this afternoon after him. And so that night, the guys would come back and say, my God, we almost... You know that he hit twice. And he hit twice, and we, we, you know... And so this went on for years. And you know this guy used to have people, and it was legendary about his fantastic fishing lake. He never cracked a smile. It wasn't until the guy died that the, everyone discovered that he had this pond mate, and there wasn't even a polywog in it. Nothing. He's just like that. Them guys get on there and whip that lake, you know. It was a, it was a lifelong practical joke. Like the time, well, I'll tell you one of the worst practical jokes that ever happened. Did you hear about the one in the in the uh, in the opera house, the famous opera house in in uh, London? Well, see, a practical joker has a special type of mind. To begin with, he has a mind that's vaguely atrophied. You got to understand that, you know, because the practical joke next to the pun is the worst kind of humor there is. I mean, you know, after all, you you see, have you ever seen a whoopee cushion that you, uh, being used? You don't know what it is? Well, I'm not going to explain it to you, friend. If you don't know what a whoopee cushion is, then, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to, to bust your innocence there. So you ask your local decadent friend what it is, and he'll tell you. So uh, I've seen these in use. So that's the kind of life I've lived. Uh, have you ever seen an exploding cigar used? You haven't. Well, uh, you have a lot of experience to be experiencing, Keith, before it's all over. And I saw one guy at a sales meeting at a very important agency here in New York uh, give a very important account man an exploding cigar. And he kept nudging him. He said, hey, watch this. And the guy's smoking a cigar away. And uh, he himself is smoking a cigar. So I'm watching the two of them. And all of a sudden, pow! No eyebrows. The guy's head flew right off, you know, bounced around the room for a while. Everybody laughed. His ear, one ear was gone. That's an exploding cigar. Oh, it's a wonderful gag, Keith. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one of the worst sneaky, rotten, stinking, practical jokes that was ever pulled in history. It's a famous one. Uh, and this, the, if you know anything about the history of practical jokes, you know this one. That there was a famous member of the peerage in England. This was back in the 1890s. In fact, it's such a famous joke that it has survived, and people still talk about it. And that's making it, man, for a practical joker. When they're talking about it 70 years later, you know, that's something else. 
what he did, uh, you know, he had some money. He's getting kind of old, and he figured he can't take it with you, you know. And uh, he had some dough. And uh, so he decided to have an opera party for his friends, uh, which included the large numbers of the peerage, you know, knights and ladies, baronets and baronesses and all that kind of stuff, see. So with that, he had this fantastic dinner party before the opera. And he specified that they must wear, it was the summer, in the, you know, kind of like in May, and he specified that the gentlemen must wear white coats. The gentlemen must wear white coats, and the ladies must be dressed in white. And uh, it was a kind of thing, they called it a white celebration or something like that. See? So they did. They all came, and the ladies were dressed in white coats, white uh, beautiful gowns and all that stuff, and they're all sitting around at the tea party and having this elegant afternoon. And then the carriages came up, see, to take them to the opera. Well, he, his, he had his man hand out their engraved tickets, which they had received, to this performance of Lohengrin, which is a very elegant opera. And this famous German opera company was in town with the famous tenors and the famous Wagnerian sopranos. And the, all the critics were going to be, you know, big first night type thing, see. Well, these tickets were worth like, you know, like 40 bucks a shot. So he gave them these beautiful engraved tickets, and the entire entourage proceeded to go to the opera in the, in the beautiful carriages and stuff. They arrived that night, and the flashbulbs are going, and they're coming through, and the people are cheering. It's, you know, the Duke of Gloucester or somebody's having his elegant uh, once-every-20-year opera party. It's a big celebration. And so everybody had his tickets, see, and these were all reserved seats. They didn't just go and sit down. Every seat in the opera house was reserved, so everybody had a number, you know, uh, seat uh, L10 or... And his wife would be seat uh, L12. And so they all walked in different, all over the house, see. And the house lights begin to dim, and everybody is sitting down now, and everybody is quietly waiting for the opera to go up. You know, the stage begins to light. There's a little slight glow from the orchestra pits, and you can hear the orchestra tuning up the dramatic moment. And then suddenly, a curious rumbling began to be heard. From the upper tiers, you know, the golden horseshoe, the diamond horseshoe, all the elegant boxes, all around the... Remember, this opera house has about 15 stories that go all the way on up, see? And all the, the peers and the peeresses, the ladies with the white dresses and the men with the white coats, are sitting down on the ground floor. And the orchestra conductor raises his baton, you know, and he goes... You know, and the first notes sound... But the crowd is not with it. You could hear a lot of mumbling and finally angry yelling. And occasionally you'd hear somebody jump up and holler, Oh, sir, this, sir, that's a vulgar display! Down on the floor, in white coats and in white evening gowns, in beautiful block letters, was spelled an incredibly obscene word. <laughs> the peers and the peeresses of the realm spelled a four-letter word the kind like you see about every five minutes in the subway. And I might point out, in an opera house, it's a somewhat unusual sight. And the, and the ladies all kept looking around, you know, what's everybody mad at? You know, what are they all looking down? And people started to say, stop, stop, this is an obscene display. Remember, this is the 1890s. They arrested 427 peers and peeresses for obscene display in public. <laughs> Hold it. <laughs> Now, that is, friends, a practical joke. And none of them knew it. See, the point is, not one knew what he was doing. He just went to a seat and sat down. Everybody else was dressed in black tie that night. 
and it just made a beautiful display. That's a legendary one. Uh, do you, you want to hear another uh, uh, legendary? Uh, 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 this this one here is talked about often. It happened in Hollywood. It's another one of those. And uh, you know the trouble. You know what the trouble with a, with a great practical joke is? There's not much you can do with it afterwards. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's one big boff, and that's it. See, well, that, that, this is a famous practical joke that was pulled on a guy uh, in in uh, in Hollywood, who shall go unnamed. He was a very famous actor in the 1930s. Also, a very famous lush, by the way. He's he's famous for his. Uh, you know, he loved to soup it up. See, and so uh, this friend of his was a famous director. Uh, was a, a man with an evil turn of mind. You know. And uh, so he, he he plotted this whole thing. And so one Saturday night, they went out to this party that he was giving, of course. And it was a party where all the, anything goes, you know, all all the booze you want. And of course, this uh, lush actor, whenever whenever you mention you know free booze, this guy started to just suck. He'd say he'd just drink anything that you shove in front of him. He just loved it. See, so it's free booze night at the you know the big director. See, so uh, he's lushing it up. He's drinking the stuff, and they and of course he's giving them the best stuff. Uh, it's a very important, you know, if you want to really get a guy going, give him good stuff, see. So he's giving him this 12-year-old bourbon. He just keeps drinking it down, uh, 12-year-old bourbon. Then he, then he brings out the champagne, and he drinks some of the champagne, beautiful champagne. Well, of course, by 10 o'clock that night, he is skunked. I mean, he is blotto. Because he was the kind, you know, would drink himself in, un, insensible, see. So, blah, he's laying there hollering, you know. And, and everybody says, come on, have another one, you know. And blah, he drinks another one. And sir, sure enough, Zap, he's out. He's laying there. Well, with that, the director picks him up, and he spirits him away. And they say, I'll take him home. See? Well, his buddies who were in on the gag says, okay, let's go. See? So they take him home to his house. Now, remember, they have been out, he's been out of his own house, see, for like uh, 12 hours or so, see, because he'd come to the party and all that stuff. And they, they, they put him in his bedroom. On the floor. They just lay him on the floor. But before they do that, they, they completely undress this guy, and they put on him a shroud, which they got at a local funeral party. You know what a shroud, like, you know, the, the kind of thing, you know, it looks like a ghost. See, they put a shroud on this guy. See, he's completely brought, he doesn't know why, he's asleep. See, he doesn't know what's going on. They lay him out on the floor, see. Okay. Well, hours go by. This guy's laying there sound asleep. And now the house is empty. Sound asleep. Hours go by. Well, now it's about 10 o'clock the next morning. And he's starting to slowly come to us. Looks around. His head is as big as five watermelons blown up with gas. And his tongue, you know, his tongue feels like a roll of barbed wire. You know that terrible feeling. You know he has this feeling like the the, the Yugoslavian army has marched right through his mouth. You know, in their stocking feet. Except his eyeballs are bugging. Well, he's used to this. See, this guy's living a life of nothing but hangovers. See, so he's just laying there waiting for things to calm down. Is waiting for his eyes to focus. See, he figures it's all going to go away. See, and his eyeballs are laying there, and he's wobbling around, and his eyeballs are spinning. But it ain't going away. He's looking up at the ceiling. And he's looking up. 
He's looking up at his bed. He sees his bed on the ceiling. It ain't coming down. He looks over to the left. And he sees his chest of drawers where he keeps all his false wigs and stuff. It's up on the ceiling. Ain't no ceiling. He's laying on the ceiling, see? He looks around. And he, right next to him is the light fixture on the ceiling. You know, with the bulbs? He's floating upside down in his own house. He's laying on the ceiling and he crawls flat. He's, he's, he's afraid he's going to fall now. See? He crawls into the next room. All the dining room furniture is up there. My God Almighty. And then he looks at it. And he sees it. He sees what he's wearing. It takes about five milliseconds to hit him and then... water on his head, he'll stop being dead. He crawls into the john. The bathtub is above him. Well, for over 15 hours, this guy crawled around in the house. And the people all around, you know, the next house, once in a while, they'd hear him yell. They'd hear it come out. They really put the last nail in on this guy's lammer. He could see up at the top of the room there what looks like the ceiling. What looks like the, he's on the ceiling, and that's the floor up there because the rugs were up there, everything up there, see? He sees on this coffee table that's up there. His phone is ringing. His phone is ringing up there. And he starts crawling up the walls, and he's crawling, he grabs a hold of the thing, and he takes a hold of the phone, and he pulls it down, he says, Hello, 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 And his voice says, Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you, Are ready, you ready to, to pay? pay? He falls back. He's getting a telephone call from God. He hangs up the phone, and it hangs, it dangles. <laughs> and that was the first instant that he realized he'd been had. His phone was dangling. Once he took it off, they had glued it up there. See, once he pulled it off, it hung. His phone is dangling. And he struggles to the front door, see? And he opens the door and crawls out, and there's 28 million people waiting. They have gotten all the Hollywood reporters, everything. And he walks, you know, staggering out, wearing his shroud, his face is fear showing out of every pore. And they all, you know, <laughs> the 
that, by the way, is a story that has been suppressed from it. This is a famous story. And you know that that guy, that guy went so totally on the wagon from that instant on that he became known as a famous party poop. This guy wouldn't even let people drink Coke at his parties because he was afraid he was going to die when he... <laughs> Well, now, listen, I'll tell you other ones. I mean, you, I, I shouldn't tell you this. That one of the worst jokes that I ever saw played, a real... Uh, it, it, it caught me. Have you ever been caught in one? A real one. Well, listen, I was caught in one. I want to tell you, I was really caught in one one time. I'm in this radar company. Now, I, I, this is in the Army. Now, we're, uh, tonight, uh, Steve, we're talking about the, the worst kind of humor there is. There's just no humor involved. Is the, is the practical joke. That's terrible. Oh, oh, ugh. You know. Well, if you've ever been caught in one, you even hate them more. And I was caught in one. I'm in this radar company. See, Company K, and uh, we're, we're deep in the heart of this jungle. And it is hot. Oh, my God almighty, it's hot. The temperature is like 105 degrees all the time. Terrible. Not only is it hot all the time, the humidity is like 400%. Can't believe that the air can have that much water in it. You just wave your arm like that, and you got a big, you know, a handful of water. You just go like, shh, and the water pours out of the air. You could cause rainstorms by clapping. Like that, and it would clap, you know, the rain would come down. Oh, man, it was hot. Heat, rash. But that isn't what bothered us. You can get used to weather. You know what bothered us? Our radar set. We had a radar set that had 15,000 volts on the plate. Now, I don't know whether you know about 15,000 volts, but back in the days when they used to have electric chairs, they were operated at about 1,800 to 2,000 volts. So you can figure what 18,000 volts are. Now, are you ready for even more bad news? It was 15,000 volts at 1.5 amps. That is powerful stuff. That's roughly enough power to blow up the city of Trenton. Just like that. Now, I'm not kidding. That has a lot, a lot of goo-goo. Well, this thing, it, it, our power supply came in a big package about the size of a 10 by 12 room, about seven foot high. And it, and it operated on trucks. It had a great big set of wheels under it. It was called a prime mover thing. Tremendous power supply. And it had a big, a, a, a great big wheel on it. Now, that wheel was the Variac. Now, that Variac, when you turn that thing up, see, it increased the power on our radar equipment. Well, now, when this thing was fully fired up, this radar, this piece of radar gear stood something like 60 feet in the air. Big baby, see. Had these great big parabolic reflectors. Enormous, like great big ears, you know, standing up there. It was all painted this... G-I-O-D green. And, uh, oh, we got so scared of that thing. There were rumors floating around about what it had done to guys. First of all, one of the most evil rumors, I'll never forget the time the rumor came around. I'm sitting up there on the azimuth scope one day. Got a pair of earphones on my head, you know, and I'm looking into that scope. But one of the guys says into the cans, hey, did you hear what this stuff does to you? I said, what? What stuff? It's the radiation out of this thing. I said, what? Makes you sterile. Whap! It hit the entire company. Our radar set was not only taking our life out, 
squeezing our veins, sucking our juice out. It was making us stare on top of it. See? So we'd circle around that radar set. Man, that was the enemy. And it went 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day with this generator set back in the, in the, in the vines there. And it was called the Leroy engine. And it, you ever hear the Leroy generator? Yeah, see? So we'd go... You listen to that 24 hours a day, man, and your head is popping. I mean, you just sort of jiggle to that temperature, to that beat. I mean, you'd lay in your bunk and it goes night and day. Try that on for size for two and a half years, friends, and you'll know that your head is turned to jelly. Well, it's popping away there, see? The biggest fear we had, though, was that 15,000 volts. There were rumors that in one company one time, three GIs were working on the power supply, and it had been turned off for over three weeks. And just the power retained in the condensers. Boom! Ionized. Three GI, nothing found of them. Just pow! Ionized. Three GIs turned into a purple haze. And they just blew away when the wind came. Well, we were scared. And every couple of days, we'd have to turn this thing down, see, and check the tubes and all that jazz. That's when it scared us. Because then you'd have to start messing with them controls, turning it down. And one day, we're down for repairs. We've been tuning the antennas. We've been working on the power supply and doing something with the, with the azimuth scope. And we start to fire up. Lieutenant Cherry comes out of his tent. He says, all right. Okay, you guys over there in the power supply, turn on the filaments. Turn on filaments on. I want to see them filaments on those 1600s on now. Let's go. And so, gung, 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 gung. Guys are throwing relays. And every time they throw a relay, you know, they start moving back. You know, gung, gung. Red lights, green lights are going on. Blue lights, gung, gung, gung. Now the filaments are on. So two minutes go by, and the big green light comes on. means the tubes are warmed up. It's ready to go. With that, Lieutenant Cherry says, all right, turn it up to... Two kilovolts, two kilovolts. Give me two kV on a plate. And so, so poor old Ernie, he grabs a hold of that big wheel, see, and he starts to turn it up. And the meter goes up to two kilovolts. Now, and whenever we started to turn up that 15,000 volts, guys would start backing away, see, because we always expected it. For a year and a half, we expected that thing to blow up. You know how it is? You expect disaster all your life, and you never really are ready for it when it hits. So Ernie turns it up to two kV. And so Lieutenant Cherry says, Everything reading okay up there? You guys up on the top? Everything reading all right? So we say, You, you, you know, you know how it is, George, whenever anybody asks you, you holler, You, you. So he says, Turn it up to 3KV. Everything reading okay up there? You, 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 you. Everybody's reading his meter. All right, turn it up to 4KV. Move it up now. Come on, let's go. Ernie turns it up to 4 kV, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, out of the top of that power supply pack, there's a thin wisp of blue smoke. It's coming out, and a sound is going... Every GI in a place dove for the ground. We had had built over the years, 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 over the years, we had built these beautiful these beautiful slit trenches and stuff that nobody ever used, and all of us dove in the slit trenches, and our big power supply is going... 
smoke is pouring out of it. Blue smoke is training to the skies. The guys are laying there. Everybody figures it's all over. It's now going. And then it goes... <coughs> made a little pop. And then out on the inside of it came the sound of a siren. And we all laid there and waited. And then we realized somebody had stuck one of those bombs in this thing. You know the kind of bombs that they put in cars and it says turn on the ignition, surprise your friends? You ever seen those? You didn't. You've heard, haven't you ever heard of those that make a whistling sound and then they blow up and make smoke? Oh, listen, that, that's responsible for a lot of unexpected laundry bills, friends. Unexpected. And we just lay there, and Lieutenant Cherry come up out of his hole with his G.I. helmet on. He's all right. I'm going to find out who put that damn bomb in that power supply, or I'm going to bust every stripe in his outfit. Now, any of you know who done it? I'm going to bust you right down to fuck. That's been censored. Now, all you get out of them holes, and we're going to start an investigation. We never did find out who did it. All I know is, from that time on, nobody really took radar seriously. Just sort of a big tinker toy. Don't forget, 8 o'clock tomorrow night, Channel 13. You hear that? You be there. That's an assignment. Tomorrow night, 8 o'clock, Channel 13. W-O-R, New York.